Hi, folks, and welcome back to Green Planet Blue Planet podcast, featuring distinctly qualified global change makers that are dedicated to creating a healthier planet. My name is Julian Guderlei. I am committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. Today's episode is part of the Design Science Studio series, a collaboration with the Buckminster Fuller Institute. And my guest is Ganga Devi Brown. Welcome, Ganga. Thank you, Julian. Yeah, Ganga is a regenerative counselor and systems change consultant who is devoted to integrity throughout the movements for regenerative culture. With a focus on cultivating collective wisdom, her work weaves together the threads of our internal, interactional, and institutional realities with an aim to move toward a truly regenerative, pluralistic culture which harmonizes with all of life. I'm excited for our conversation and, you know, I'm excited for um, what is birthing out of this design science studio that we've both been part of for the last six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been, it's been amazing just reflecting on the fact that it has been, you know, five, six months um, in this journey. And there are so many incredible people who I've met through the design science studio, so many amazing collaborations that have happened and so many creations that have come forward from me that it's astonishing that it's only been this amount of time. Yeah, so let's backtrack a little bit and maybe tell us how you connected to the idea to being part of the like the, the modern design science decade. You know, we, mm-hmm. we have Richard Buckminster Fuller who started this as a response to building livingry rather than weaponry, right? And 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 so now in the 2020s, um, a few people came together and and invited into this. How did you hear of it and 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 say, I want to be part of that? This is for mm-hmm. me. Yeah, well, so I I can kind of track my participation in the design science studio actually uh, through a series of synchronicities that go all the way back to when I was 14 years old and first heard of Buckminster Fuller. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, when I was 14 years old, I was actually at a a gathering in upstate Massachusetts with my father and um, the spiritual community that that he has been a part of since the 70s um, that that I was born into, the community of of Ramdas in Neem Karoli Baba. devotees, the devotees of Neem Karoli Baba, um, who, and and it was this this beautiful gathering, um, and I was with my godmother, Mirabai Bush, who um, is an incredible woman, and her son was working on a project that had to do with Buckminster Fuller, and I was hearing his name, and his name just stuck out to me so um, starkly, uh, and I remember having the thought, if I ever have a bunny rabbit, I want to name it Buckminster Fuller. I just, as a, like a child, like as a young, young adult, like I just remember thinking that's what I want. <laughs> that, that, that was like somehow the mnemonic way that that name <laughs> stuck in my mind. And it wasn't until um, the years later um, in the spring of 2017 um, that I met the person who was the partner um, uh, on that project that that everybody was talking about at mm. that time. And uh, that person was David McConville, who at the time was the chairman of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. And we met at this really incredible gathering um, that I was very honored to be invited to. And uh, we just really, really connected and a, a deep friendship was born from that moment. Um, so that was the beginning of my relationship with the Buckminster Fuller Institute. And we it was so spontaneous. It was beautiful because 
I, I found in that in that moment in that friendship emerging um, that so many so many things that had come onto my plate and onto my into my field of, of vision and conception of what is possible for humanity, what is possible for the solutions for this world, um, that it was really came from my own regenerative awakening that had happened about two years previously. Um, David and I like. I would just name and talk about those things that I was like, this thing needs to happen and we need to correct our food systems and we need to um, sequest uh, carbon in in our oceans through algae, like all these things. And David was like, yeah, that that's happening here and that's happening here. And the Buckminster Fuller Institute is supporting that happening here. And all of these amazing projects were unfolding all over the world. And I was, I was astonished and I was so relieved to know that, that what I was longing for to happen in the world that I felt like maybe I had to do all on my own somehow that I was actually going to be in collaboration with others. So it was a natural thing when the Buckminster Fuller Institute launched the Design Science Studio. Um, I had already been involved for a couple of years with them. I had taught um, an ecology section in their uh, in their uh, trim tab space, base camp, and it was just a natural step for me to join this cohort, um, just from a place of deep curiosity and excitement to create with others and to really actually be in that co-creation of the regenerative culture that we're all longing for and actually be in a container where we can support one another's visions and where we can know what's actually happening in that field so that we can so that we can harmonize with one another rather than just kind of just kind of operating in a more it was it was much more like clunky it was much more um I feel like everyone was always trying to collaborate before we we came together in design science studio but we didn't really know how and I think we're still figuring it out but we're really on a good path forward to figuring out how to collaborate with one another well through what we're doing in DSS yeah, I love your passion and and that story be, behind behind how you kind of found your way to Buckminster Fuller and you know it actually sparks uh, a memory that yeah that name was totally starkly standing out at some point in my life mm. and then I realized that this unique individual and everyone that came into my life through Buckminster Fuller's kind of connectivity and synchronicity those were all the people that believe that there is a, a quote unquote better world possible. And I think that is a very comforting feeling as in, in terms of like allowing for creativity, allowing for wisdom or for healing to come through because, you know, it, it comes from this connection with this, this kind of tribe where you, you know, okay, well, first of all, I don't have to challenge all of my beliefs around a world that can possibly work for everyone. Now, on that pathway there, we have to learn how to collaborate, right? And we have to learn how to, how to um, actually be inclusive to all of life, which I don't think any of us has figured out quite yet, um, but it comes back to this commitment and this commitment phase we're in. And there's a quote on your website, uh, Ganga, about you know you being committed to cultivating the collective wisdom capacity of humanity. And so I think it's really obvious that we are in times of really great change, but that commitment to me seems pivotal to anything creative we want to we want to birth. Can you dive in a little bit deeper how this is such a clarity for you that you're just like like no matter what, this is your commitment with life. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think that um, I I feel that there's there's two words that are actually kind of um, at play with what with what you're speaking to, which is um, commitment and devotion. Uh, being kind of two sides of the same coin um, in my language. And I feel like I couldn't speak to my commitment without also bringing in my devotion. Um, so I just want to to start with that. And um, yeah, you know, I. I've had a strange, I've had a strange life. I've had a very unusual life. And one of the facets of, of my life um, is, is that 
I was raised with a really rich spirituality that was always about collective liberation. And when I was in college, I, um, I took vows with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher that um, my mother is a very committed student to and that I was studying with at the time and, and continue to. Um, his name is Zigar Kongtrul Rinpoche. He's a Nyingma Tibetan Buddhist um, Vajrayana teacher. And he- You went and, really and, fast over that name. Can oh, you say I that Yes, his name is Zigar Kongtrul Rinpoche. And his organization is Mangala Shri Bhuti, if anyone is ever interested. He doesn't advertise very much. He doesn't cast a very wide net. He's not interested in having many, many students, but people who are really committed. Um, we'll find him. He, we'll find him. Yeah. So um, got it. Thanks love for him. saying that a second time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. And um, he he has a he has an annual um, or actually I think it's twice a year now uh, gathering that's on the modern day Bodhisattva. And um, he talks about uh, applying the ideas of the Bodhisattva, which is somebody within the Mahayana Buddhist tradition who is committed to pursuing their own enlightenment, not for their own sake, but for the benefit of all beings. And the way that I operate and the way that I see the world is, is that all of phenomena is profoundly interdependent. It is profoundly interconnected. And I think that whether you come to that realization through studying uh, a spiritual or tradition, uh, um, spiritual, religious, or philosophical tradition, or just by studying cause and effect all around you, just by observing the nonlinear causal nature of reality, I think that anybody who's listening to this, anyone who's a interested in regeneration has a sense of the interdependence of all life. Um, but this is something that's really, really emphasized in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And, and yeah, that, that tradition and that way of understanding the world is really, really rooted in me, in my mind and my, my relationship with reality. And so, and for me, the, the, I think some people talk about the way of the bodhisattva as something that's like very selfless and very um, self-sacrificing almost and almost cruel to yourself. Why would you return to samsara, to suffering over and over and over again uh, just for other people? Why would you want that? But I, my perspective is that the impulse of bodhicitta, the impulse to pursue enlightenment and by enlightenment I, I truly mean liberation and I don't just mean liberation on a spiritual or psychological sense but in terms of actual liberation on every scale including political liberation social liberation liberation of of life on all like ecological spheres and that the longing to liberate all beings naturally comes from awareness of interdependence. And there, when you are aware of the incredible interdependence of all reality, it's just kind of obvious. It's just like, it's just obvious that there is no individual liberation without collective liberation. It's just not possible. And so from that, it, it's just the commitment feels just like, it's just like a natural outflow and natural impulse of my being that I would be committed to cultivating the conditions for the thriving of all of life. And for me, one of the strategies of that commitment is, is nurturing collective wisdom. Uh, I think there are a lot of really amazing people who are doing amazing work on collective intelligence these days. Um, and I deeply honor and respect that work, but the work of collective wisdom is somewhat different. And um, I 
perhaps it's because I was raised with a lot of wisdom traditions and I'm continue to renew my commitment to those wisdom traditions. Um, but I feel that every single human has tremendous capacity for wisdom. I really do believe that. I believe that every human being has it deeply, deeply rooted within themselves to, to have the wisdom and to source the wisdom that we all need in order to arrive at a global culture and less than global, more translocal culture all around the planet. Planetary. If I can yes, throw that planetary. In. Thank you. Yeah. Um, way of being that is that is truly omnibeneficial. We need everyone's wisdom to come online for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- you just shared a whole bunch of things that I, you know, maybe some mental pins in and, and will at some point probably circle back in our conversations. Um, funnily enough, Bob Marley comes into my mind, emancipate yourself from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our minds, which I, I always found such an awakening song, the, the redemption song, right, to, to invite people into this idea that we first have to actually free ourselves before we really participate in the creative pursuit or in the pursuit of building something. Otherwise, we'll just continue to build more of the same, more of the linear, more of the known, more of these control structures and more, more of, yeah, what ultimately doesn't truly allow um, liberation, I think is the word you, you used. Yeah, and just to just to add on to that quote, um, today, the day that we are recording this, not the day that this will be released, but the day we're recording this is actually the birthday of Audre Lorde, who's one of the most influential thinkers and, and writers um, in my life. And uh, she has an incredible quote that's very much worth bringing up now as well, um, from the perspective of, of herself as a, as a leader in the Black feminist movement, um, in which she said, I am not free while any woman is unfree even when her shackles are very different from my own. Wow, let's let that sink in. There's so much wisdom in that, that, and applying it beyond beyond feminism, inclusive of feminism to all, all pursuits of liberation. I feel like we just really kind of positively rambled into like the, the, the core feeling of this design science studio, um, experience right now. And, and this is framed by the Buckminster Fuller Institute as the design science decade, right? And in the decade, each two years have kind of a different theme in the way it is being anticipated. And the theme of the 2020-2021 year is, is reconciliation and commitment. And so I asked you about commitment, but really reconciliation comes up because it seems to be on some kind of an interesting polarity to commitment because we can't really fully commit in true liberation as long as we haven't healed or reconciled this of you know this this inequality this this steady oppression from the past and i don't think we've we've done the best job in the world or like the job is done in this in this design science um cohort but i think we've we, we are addressing it and we're actively continuing to invite into it now i don't know if reconciliation or healing are ever done i don't personally believe it is but i think it is important to simply create the space for it because that's when you know we can we can open this question to what are we actually committed to and what is it that we want to bring into this world? And only when we make really wild commitments, we can actually also humble ourselves to say, wait a second, I don't actually know any of the the steps to get there, but I'm I'm wildly committed to it. And so therefore I will figure out, I will will apply my knowledge into experience, which then results in the wisdom as you just shared, right? to find a path to get there. 
And another humbling effect and factor of this, and, and you already mentioned it as well, is that we, we can't do this alone. There is no way to figure this out alone. You can get rich alone and you can reach a certain status alone and you can you know, hack the system alone, the system that we know. But to act on the emergence of consciousness to what is truly coming through the human soul in a state of liberation, we have to go together. Yes, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually reminded uh, as you're speaking of um, the, a, a poem from Buckminster Fuller, uh, which is called, And It Came to Pass Not to Stay. And it's actually all about wealth and different, different ways of looking at and understanding wealth. And um, the only form of wealth that Buckminster Fuller identifies that, that we are actually able to grow, that we are actually truly able to grow, true wealth is know-how. That's, that's how he puts it, is know-how, knowledge. Um, I would also add, wisdom to that, or perhaps wisdom isn't something that is grown. Perhaps wisdom is just something that is, that is tapped into. Um, but, but also like knowledge is not something that we can achieve on our own. We have to be learning with others and alongside others and, and in the context of, of community and something that I learned in design science studio, um, I forget the exact numbers, but it was about how we actually retain things that we learn. Uh, in different in different like pedagogical settings, and uh, the the highest level of retention is learning in a peer environment that um, in which you're learning from your peers, but you're also teaching what you're learning to your peers. And that's actually how I've how I've um, designed the curriculum of of my project within the Design Science Studio, and how um, I I want to pursue everything that I do from here on out is I want people to really learn, and if that means learning together, then that's what we should do. Um, and so like whether it's learning together or accomplishing things together, seeking to heal the world together, all of these things, it has to be collective. It has to be collective. It won't be effective if it's not. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I love that you brought up the retention of when we're learning with peers. And there is a Stephen Johnson quote that, you know, was kind of featured in one, one of the many visionary decks that, that, that are floating around within our community. And the quote goes about, um, I think I'm paraphrasing, but our thoughts shape our spaces and our spaces in return um, shape our thoughts or return that favor. And so when I think of that, spaces is something that in my mind is often associated as something very architecturally or something very physical. But really in this day and age that we are in where we're, you know, through maybe some kind of from some angle, unlucky circumstances, we're synchronistically connecting more digitally with a whole group of people that we possibly could have never met in physical space before. And also the, the sheer mathematical or statistical kind of overlap of who is meeting whom now based on that a lot of things are digital, create space. They create a mm -hmm. digital space. They create a space when it's facilitated way, well, we could even say it's ontologically designed. It's designed for a state of being first so that we can be peers with each other around kinship and belief systems into this world with livingry rather than weaponry mm -hmm. and then from there the magic starts turning even if there's no tactile outcome or even if there's no instant understanding of what's the next step often i think often because there's no tactical outcome being being strived for or yeah like a, a specific next step that is that is preconceived 
the 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 beauty of multiple living systems coming together is that spontane it spontaneously gives rise to emergent properties, new living systems that emerge uh, that are different than what could have been imagined or planned or contrived by the by the systems at play individually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Very well said. There's a whole bunch of questions that are coming up for me, and I'm just kind of um, pondering where to take it, because one of the themes in this design science cohort, cohort number one, and obviously everyone who's listening, if this is intriguing to you, make sure you apply for one of the future cohorts. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Ganga, if this goes for you as well, but I can say for sure that this, for me, has already turned into a commitment of a full decade. I don't know in which shape or form I'm going to be involved in every year, but it's it's such a clear personal commitment in my life and has been before. And now having found another kind of fragment of my tribe, it's like, I can't wait to play for longer than these six months. Mm -hmm. But the theme that's coming up a lot is, is, is this of the necessity or the need for a different kind of dictionary or new words, neologisms that allow for just meanings that are kind of formerly almost, you know, invisible to make those visible. What are some of those words that, that maybe you've, you've captured or, or some of the thoughts you have around that? Hmm. Well, I mean, um, since, since joining the design science decade or, or okay, cool. Um, <laughs> or before, if you have anything that's like really fitting into that context. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I actually, I just, I, I think it's useful to share when, when just the word regeneration became a, a really significant piece of, of yeah, my lexicon. Totally. Um, so for me, I didn't know that there was like regenerative movement stuff happening. And, and it was very, very early in what I would consider like the regenerative um, emergence that, that is unfolding everywhere. We have words for this now we'll get to in a moment. Um, but I, I had, I was in a relationship with a, um, I was, I was studying a lot of social sciences and um, religious anthropology and uh, Tibetan language translation and things like that in college. And my, mm. my partner at the time was um, an environmental studies major. And we were both very, very interested in, in both culture and ecology. And we were both I, I had begun to be involved in some restorative justice work. Um, I have a mentor who is an incredible, uh, incredible figure in the restorative justice um, space, and I was learning a lot from her. And and my partner at the time also was um, studying restoration ecology, and we were feeling like really frustrated with the language of restoration um, in these contexts, both social and ecological, and also frustrated with the language of sustainability. We were just like, it is such a toothless yeah. term. It doesn't mean anything. And, and 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 I mean that's a bold statement, but we were just frustrated with it, and so we started this mental this uh, thought experiment that was that was what if we exchanged every instance of the word um, it, the word sustainable, but also the word restorative, just in our own minds. If we just changed it to regenerative, what would that turn out to be? What would that what would that give rise to? And that was really like it felt like it unlocked a lot of things in my brain. I really changed my brain um, to to do that. And so I just want to mention that if anyone's listening um, that is intrigued by that as a thought experiment, please take that on. Please just see what happens and what the word regeneration turns out to mean to you when you practice that and, and explore different definitions and different ideas around regeneration. Like truly allow yourself to come into a sense, a state of confident, um, confident, trust in in your own understanding of regeneration over time 
that's gonna, just something I want to throw one in there, Ganga. Yeah, please. So in, in another word that I've learned in the design science cohort, I'm going to double tap on this <laughs> because, um, meaning I, I'm hiding or liking it because that's the same thing that happened to me, actually. I was majorly frustrated with the whitewashing about the word sustainability and what it really means and how easy it was for companies and, and, and syndicates to get around it. And at some point, the word regeneration and regenerative came up uh, for me and in my consciousness. And suddenly I was playing with all of these layers of what it actually includes from the soil and how we address agriculture and how we, how we you know, um, relate to as humans between multiple generations of our own lineages or how we think of ourselves as ancestors of the future and mm. many, many more things could come up. But, but just to mention a few, it's, it was really a game-changing kind of um, way to look or way to perceive how I am doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it changes everything. I, I feel that I can track you know, meeting David McConville and becoming like all, like all of the amazing synchronicities that have unfolded in my life in the last four or five years, I genuinely attribute them to that, that simple shift. I, I feel that that was a choice that I made that changed the trajectory of my entire life to just commit to curiosity around these terms. Well, this is this is kind of cool that it comes up in the way it's coming up in in this episode because really the regenesence right mm -hmm. this this kind of another neologism that that we've created um and that's really kind of taken a hold and it's also i've definitely like dedicated the, the podcast to be one of those vehicles for it is is basically this idea of what we were just talking about regeneration as a a, a word that symbolizes times of change mm into circular thinking and living, right? Mm -hmm. Circular meaning uh, circular economy, but also meaning the, the cycle of life and the, the cycle of life between generations and the cycle of the soil and, and, and the cycle of the waters and all of these, these cycles that are really inherent in nature's intelligence, meeting the Renaissance, right? The, the time of, yeah, I mean, a, a classical golden era in that sense of creative outburst after I think the, the Italian Renaissance happened after the bubonic plague ended. So like, mm -hmm kind of like a parallel to where we are at in our society right now, great devastation, possibly even devastation of death, sickness, people had to rethink what they're doing. And on the other side of that is a, a, a birthing of opportunity because really great chaos yeah. is kind of the starting place of opportunity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I, you know, and I, when I think about it, I, I like to think about um, different renaissances throughout time, not not just the renaissance that emerged out of Italy, um, in which is like the renaissance that we refer to. Um, but also, you know, in, in Tibet, there was actually a renaissance in the 11th century, uh, where um, many new schools of Tibetan Buddhism uh, were born because there was new, new information and new texts that were being brought from India, um, all the way across the Himalayas into into Tibet. And of course, there's a there's a different name there's a tibetan name for what happened there but you know i think about that and and uh, you know as as a as a significant um influencer in my my understanding of what does renaissance mean and what does the regenaissance mean as well and 
this like infusion of new ways of of approaching uh, understanding reality and and also looking at what was you looking at deep more deeply into the past, um, which is what the Tibetan Renaissance in the 11th century as well as uh, as well as the European Renaissance was it, it was it was actually re very much in conversation with the past and that's something that is I think an element of regeneration on a cultural level that I would actually like to see us talk about a lot more um, because regeneration isn't about just going into the future, like just going into new perpetual growth. It's it's not about perpetual growth at all. It's actually very much, if you look at regeneration on an ecological um, agricultural level, it's all about composting well. It's all about taking what has gone before and what is no longer no what no longer has the function that it perhaps once did have and finding and allowing it to naturally decompose in place to be able to give rise to new life new meaning evolving species evolving culture evolving all of these things new life coming out of the um, the natural and appropriate decomposition of the past. And so, you know, when I think about regeneration so in a cultural that, yeah. way, yeah, I, I think about, well, okay, what from the past needs to decompose? <laughs> and right now we're seeing the collapse of so many systems that were never created for equity to begin with, that were never created for an omnibeneficial future and world to begin with. That was never the case for a lot of the systems that are crumbling now. But they did serve some functions. And so my question is always, you know, what were those purposes? And how can we take what is dying? How can we take what is decomposing? How can we take what is passing away from the old world and honor that which is sacred or that which is which serves from that and really make sure that we're actually metabolizing and actually deconstructing the things that really have no place in the future and and allowing that to create the fertile soil for for the future and there are, there's like metaphysical ways of understanding that but there's also incredibly practical ways of understanding that as well yeah, that's the beauty about these these processes in the context of regeneration or the context of just, you know, the patterns of life really is that they they can be very esoteric, but really, truly, and, and only if they're also very pragmatic, they're truly connected <laughs> to life because life is so pragmatic, but life is also so multidimensional. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, this came up in a few of the, the, the Science Science Studio series interviews already that this um, reductionist era of science as the only sense-making tool is, is, is kind of at, at a very um, interesting, um, maybe com composing point, com composting point right now with, with the global pandemic and, and the way our health organizations are taking care of it. Because once again, I think there is, um, there's probably more possible um, to say the very least and, and not to get lost in this rabbit hole. But. <laughs> Yeah, Ganga, I have a, a personal question um, for you that I'd love to bring up at this point. And a lot of the things that we're talking about and a lot of the things that are the themes and topics when we, we you know, we venture into this kind of world and again, to bring up Bachman Fuller's words like utopia or oblivion, right? Are we, are we living in a world that is dying in a world that is centered around death or are we actually able to kind of pivot into um, birthing uh, not just a paradigm, not just a belief system or a dogma, but like systems and relationships interconnectedness as you called it before that allow all of life to thrive and so in that kind of a choice what i've come across in every community i'm in in every 
project with every client I've been uh, in a relationship with is the topic of trust. Mm. And so I'm curious, I've actually asked this question over 260 people at this point, at some point, I'm going to write a book about it, because I think trust is such an interesting kind of thermostat of, of our human relationships. What is required for you to experience trust? Mm. So what is required for me to experience trust is nothing external to me it's it's only it's it's an inside job um for me my capacity to trust others can only exist to the extent that I'm able to trust myself and I have done a lot of work to trust myself um it it was not it's not something that has been natural or automatic to me I think we live in a world that really cultivates a sense of um, either just disconnection from self, uh, disconnection from our capacity to trust or, or an actual distrust of, of ourselves, of our bodies, of our body intelligence, of our intuition, of our capacity to, to think and process and metabolize um, anything around us, of our distrust of our capacity to, to deal with trauma, all of these things. Um, I've had tremendous distrust of myself. And I, you know, when I was a child, like I lied all the time. I was not a trustworthy person when I was a child. Um, I didn't, I don't know why, but I just had this impulse to just like hide the truth all the time. And so uh, for me, I've really taken my own shadow work really seriously. And I've really sought to be a trustworthy person to the people who I love. I've sought to be trust, truly trustworthy. And as I, and that that's really what motivates my shadow work. Like I wouldn't do it if it was just for me, but I do it because I wanna have really good relationships with the people that I love and that I want to collaborate with and that I want to build life with and I want to, to be in existence with. And, and from that commitment, from that longing, from that devotion to those relationships, to my own trustworthiness, I have found that I know whether or not I can trust people because my body tells me. I know whether or not I can, what, to what degree I can trust an environment because my body tells me if it's trustworthy or not. My intuition tells me. I, I'm also a student of human design. And so I've, I've really gotten to know my own design in that context. Um, and I, I'm a pure generator with sacral authority. So I know what it feels like in my body when my intuition is coming online. And Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And that has been a huge, that has been like the best thing ever. And, and that it's like, it's not, it's, it's like not even my business if another person is trustworthy or not. It's my business to respond appropriately to what I understand is going on in the environment that I'm a part of. And sometimes that means removing myself from that environment. Sometimes it means speaking up in instances that are sometimes very uncomfortable. Sometimes it means just modeling the kind of behavior that I think I, that I would like to see in the space. Um, there's like a lot of different ways that that, that response can come, um, but it has to begin with a sense of self-trust and self-knowledge. Yeah, thank you for that deep answer. I love it. Um, I have another one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> And this is maybe a little random, but you know, we kind of went through almost like a schooling schooling <laughs> program there with the Design Science Studio. So, yeah. if you alone or with any group of chosen experts 
uh, could change the education system as we know it, what would you do? Mm, so this is actually really fun because it, it definitely ties into the question about trust as well. Um, in the Design Science Studio, uh, we had a number of, of uh, sessions with Tony Patrick on world building. And um, one of the tasks that we had was to, in, in these like small breakout things, um, we were tasked to kind of imagine the uh, 30 years from now, the cultural norms that, um, that, that enable something that we want to see happen in the future. And the, the task that um, my, my dear friend Harris and I uh, had was, was moving at the speed of trust. That was like the, the long-term goal that we had as our task. And so we backcasted what would need to happen like every year um, for the, for, within this decade to allow a culture, to enable a culture that, that is able to move at the speed of trust. And what we devised was actually an end result a decade from now in our educational system that, and, and not just in our educational system, but certainly centered there, um, but a, a, a culture of um, forest bathing actually, uh, in, in the style that um, a friend of mine, Julia Plevin, who wrote The Healing Magic of, of Forest Bathing, she- Who's been on Green Planet Blue Planet Oh, podcast. wonderful. I just talked to her earlier today. She's wonderful. Nice. Um, she, so she's developed um, this beautiful framework and approach for forest bathing that uh, really creates a sense, a sense of trust among the people who participate together. There's aspects that are very solitary and that, that are very collective. And it's a practice that really regulates the nervous system and allows you to be, so in, you're in a trusting relationship with your own body, with the people around you and with the larger ecosystem that you are embedded within. And I really thought of that as like such an amazing, powerful touch point of, of like, if, if we could have everyone on the planet regularly having these kinds of experiences and the way that Julia's really developed them and designed them brilliantly, um, but in, in, in unique manifestations it, 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 between different communities, not as like, there's this one thing and we're gonna like colonize everyone <laughs> to be the, do forest bathing in this one singular way, but, but to enable actually every community to develop their own protocols and their own rituals and to allow schools to manifest it in, in ways that are you know, uniquely responsive to the needs and the, of the students, as well as to the unique ecology and the, the location of the schooling. Um, even if it was something that was done you know, even if the whole school didn't change to be outside schooling, which would be amazing. Uh, but even if like nothing else changed, but but there was regular, there were regular experiences of that, whether it was every day, every week, once a month, something like that. I think that that would be a profoundly transformative, long-term change for humanity. People would have a sense of ecology. People would have a sense of what it means to be in silence with others and, and in deep relationship with trees and with yourself and with somebody that you've only just now encountered in this new way because you're in this unique experience of the world. Um, that is That is, I think, the one change that I would like to see happen. Yeah, that's a deep one, right? When we are educating and learning with nature as a primary teacher things just change i mean we we understand our own nature we understand these others nature we we see the interconnectedness mm -hmm. from an early age I, i'm absolutely 100 percent with you um for today's episode and it feels yeah. like I'm, I'm cutting us short because you know there's so much uh incredible energy in you that is able to articulate 
like very few people are able to articulate and, and I'm, I'm really appreciative about what we shared already in this episode but for today I have one more question mm-hmm. and um, this is about you know a multi, multi-generational perspective so yes. when we talked about regeneration we mentioned it a little earlier that this kind of generational thinking starts to happen and it's also inherent in the indigenous way of seeing the world and so if you were to zoom out with me for seven generations right mm-hmm. now and just for for a few seconds here just ponder what's deeply in your soul or in your heart as a dream or as a prayer for um, humanity or for our planet if you see yourself as an ancestor of the future so i feel like there are like tactical ways to answer that question (laughs) but that's not how i want to answer the question um what i actually feel called to to share is um a vision that i had about four years ago that was just like a a snippet but it's the strongest thing that comes forward when when i when i hear your question is it can i share that it it won't take too long oh yeah for sure (laughs) okay cool so i don't know i don't know maybe this is seven generations in the future maybe this is my great 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 granddaughter's eyes that i'm seeing through um or perhaps a future incarnation of myself i've always had a sense of that but there's a vision that i had on the night that I actually met the person who's now my husband, um, which was New Year's Eve going into 2017. And in the vision, I am walking, I'm standing on a threshold between my, my home that I'm walking out of and the space surrounding my home. I'm walking out of my front door and my home behind me is, is simple and has everything I could need. And there are people that I love there. And the space that I'm walking into also has people that I love and has other homes that are similar to the home that I just walked out of. But there's also common spaces. There's, uh, there's an outdoor kitchen and there's, um, there are gardens where children are playing. And there's this huge canopy of trees growing above us. And in the understory of the tree, we, of, the, of all of the trees, we are maintaining beautiful food forests um, in a way that is really responsible to our bioregion. That, that sense was very, very clear in this vision, in this one moment that I had a glimpse of. And I could set, see and sense the, the presence of the homes of the people that I most want to be in village life with all around and I could feel the presence of of everything that we needed to have that life. And I didn't see any cars, I didn't see any, um, any, any big machines, if there were, if there was, you know, machines and technology, they were deeply integrated into, into every piece of our life. There was nothing that felt, nothing that felt um, contrived or inorganic in this space. And, and I just felt this intense sense of peace, and this intense awareness, this in, incredible knowing that the peace that I was feeling and the the ease of the life of everyone all around me, that this was happening everywhere on the planet in ways that were unique and appropriate and emergent from the intelligence of the land, from the unique ecosystem of each place on the planet, but that everyone access to this kind of way of living. And I knew in that moment that I had done everything possible to get us there. 
and to contribute to that and knowing deeply that I was not the only person, but that there were many of us, but that I, through my devotion, through my commitment, had done everything that I could possibly do to bring humanity and to bring this planet into that state of being. And I can't have the hubris to know what would be most appropriate in South Asia. I can't have the hubris to know what would be most appropriate on the Russian steppes. I don't know what's appropriate in different places, but I know that I contributed to the emergence of the wisdom of the places all around the world through supporting people in, in giving rise to their wisdom. And that's, that's the only answer I have. I don't know how far off, I don't know whatever, but that is the timeline that I am navigating toward. That is like the attractor state that I am always bearing in mind with every choice that I make. Thank you so much for sharing that vision that you had a few years ago and take us to that moment. It deeply resonates in just in listening. And, you know, I had a just a spy really briefly to understand the definition of hubris. And so I don't have the hubris mm -hmm. Now I use the same word <laughs> to know the right answer to this question, because there is no right answer to this question. But I'm uh, part of my devotional commitment is to continue to. Um, I don't want to say extract because it sounds mm, like a wrong. Not word, extract. But to inspire, to inspire <laughs> yeah. these stories. Yeah, to and to nurture the space. I mean, you, in what you're doing with the podcast, you are cultivating the space through asking questions, which, which is, I think, you know, Daniel Christian Wall, like he really emphasizes like questions are the thing like and and my project with design science studio is literally me asking the question what questions need to be asked in order to give rise naturally to regenerative cultures all around the world in a high high integrity way um that's that's literally what drives me and the fact that you have then approached this this inquiry by creating an environment in which you just ask questions i think is brilliant julian i love it Well, thank you. I've, there was a lot of brilliance that you shared in this episode. And thank you for acknowledging um, literally the core reason of why I started this pursuit. Anyone who's, who's been listening for a while, um, I highly recommend you do this in your own life in yes. whatever form uh, that it takes for you. It does not have to be a podcast, but following inquiry deeper and deeper and deeper into relationships, into connection points is something something marvelous happens and and you know i find myself sometimes too in, in in sharing and thinking that i know and then i reflect back and i'm like did i ask a question and mm -hmm. and, and i can answer that with a confident yes then then there's a bit of ease because when we ask questions that's when life really happens yeah and i think that's why children ask so many questions because they're new to life and they're just wanting to play how this all works right and so um, Ganga, this was a super entertaining episode. Thank you so much for making the time, for making the space, for being you. And um, preach, sister. I mean, this is <laughs> this is really the message, and it has to be it has to be out there more and more. And it's it's really not a message that is you and I telling people what to do. It's a message that for you listening again, this is an invitation. Find the Design Science Studio. This is a decade long program. Join in whatever form you see fit for yourself and and uh, just be inspired and inspire others. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Julianne. And thank you, everybody who's listening. Like, thank you for your contribution. Thank you for your curiosity. Thank you for being a part of this incredible, incredible emergence that is happening all over the planet. We need you. We all need you. Life needs your brilliance. Please step into it. Yeah.
That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Here we are again. This is your host, Julian, and I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. Check out my Patreon, best way to support the podcast, myself and the mission, lots of exciting perks and ways to be engaged to receive more value. That being said, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe, review the show, share it with the people you love, and have yourself a stellar day. Thank you.